G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. This episode, I've had the lovely Clarissa Sawley came in and we had a conversation about data security, communication between therapists, uh, her general story and how she got into this interest area, and where we think the future of confidentiality and data transfer is going for health professions. Yeah, I've actually been working in mental health for 13 years. Um, before you finished? Mental health. Yeah, way before oh. I even started. Oh. What were you doing? Um, well, I started out, well, I was volunteering in different mental health charities, different mental health services back when I was still at school. Hmm. And then as soon as I could, I got a job in a mental health rehab hostel. And I was working as a support worker, mm. just supporting people with their everyday lives, you know, going shopping with them, playing pool with them. And so, yeah, that was kind of long before I even knew what OT was, I was working in mental health. Wow. So what, What just because I don't even, it might be a thing here, but what is a rehab hostel? Oh, gosh, and there's not a thing in Australia. Oh, I don't know. It might just be called something else. Okay. Um, so it's kind of like a, a house mm. that's got maybe, so in, in the one I worked in, it had 10 bedrooms and then people would come out of hospital, you know, like an acute ward yeah. and would need some supported living. And so they would each have a bedroom there with a shared communal space and staff who are there 24 hours a day who can support them with everyday life. So like clinical staff or just like support staff? It in the one I worked in, it was all support staff, okay. but I think there are some services where there might be, say, a mental health nurse who works there. So it's kind of like a in step general, down. Yeah, basically. And then you'll have people from the community mental health team who will pop in and, you know, see people, um, you know, maybe if people need injections or if they need help with specific appointments, they'll have people who come and see them there for that work. Nice. So is that how you kind of found OT or is that something different? Yeah, that's that's exactly how I found OT. Um, so I was while I was working in this hostel, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and so every person who came in, there was, you know, there's OT, social workers, psychologists didn't actually come into the project, but my, my clients went to go see them. Yep. And um, same with psychiatrists. And so I was trying to figure out which one of these jobs do I want. Um, the nurses all told me never become a nurse, <laughs> at least not in mental health. Good call. Um, yeah. Um, the social workers seemed extremely stressed. <laughs> um, whereas the, <laughs> the OTs all came in and just seemed to genuinely love their jobs. Um, and my clients were always really excited when an OT was going to come see them. And when I'd be like, oh, what are you doing with the OT today? They'd be saying things like, oh, I'm going to cook my favorite meal or, oh, they're going to help me to go to the cinema. Or it would all be things that really mattered to them and they could really see the value. Not that I'm saying that all the other professionals weren't providing value because they all had really important jobs. Mm. But I loved how tangible it was to the service user that, 
what the OT is doing with me really matters to me. That's awesome. I do like that the, the nurses, I've never met a nurse that's gone, yeah, you should be a nurse. It's amazing. <laughs> Especially, well, not in mental health anyway. I, no. I don't know why. Yeah, I, yeah. And I, I like the way that you've kind of deduced from uh, your, your experience, even just observing the different professions, where where you should be ending up. And I think obviously it's a, a great way of doing it because you, you ended up with the best one anyway. I mean, yeah, it is pretty great, isn't it? <laughs> um, but, you know, I think the thing that really swung it for me when I started looking into OT was how the same degree could get you to work. You know, you could work in different countries. You could work in different clinical areas. Because um, I, I grew up moving around a lot. And so I experienced loads of different cultures, loads of different countries through my whole life. And I I wanted a career where I could maybe choose to go work in a different country for a while or work with a different set of people because I, I'd seen the diversity that was out there. Yeah. That's amazing. I've never heard of anyone who just grew up on a ship. That's awesome. <laughs> so Yeah, it was it was pretty great. And obviously you were like younger when that happened. Yeah, I was twelve. Okay. Still that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's really shaped me. And like I said, it's just made me really curious about why people do the things they do. And I think that's why OT appealed to me so much. Yeah, I think that's uh, that was one of, not necessarily, I didn't grow up on a ship, uh, but I think uh, that was one of the appealing features of it for me as well as uh, I think more so because I get bawdy. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I can flip and change and I can go here and I can go here and it's all with this one degree, and that sounds amazing. Whereas mm. when I originally started uni and I was doing uh, engineering, if I wanted to change sort of fields, I'd have to go back and do more study. So OT yeah. definitely had that going for it. Yeah, definitely. So you went to uni. Uh, I'm assuming it was a bachelor entry, bachelor course that yeah. you did. I have to check because everyone's different nowadays and who knows what everyone's doing. That's uh, true. Yeah, it was a bachelor's. And I'm assuming you just loved it and you just loved studying and reading all the books. Yeah, all the books. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, obviously on Twitter I'm known as Geeky OT. I am, um, I am painting this I'm picture. The, I am just geeky. <laughs> you are, but I mean, it's, it's true. I can't, oh, I can't I hide it and I don't want to hide it. I'm a proud geek. Um, I'm I'm a theorist by nature. I just love reading about any subject and understanding how things work. Um, and then obviously I've got loads of geeky interests as well, like board games, geocaching, comic books, technology. Um, so that, that's just who I am. That's my occupational identity, and I'm cool with that. Very good. We will get onto some of those things in a bit because I have mm. many questions. <laughs> You always do. I always do. And that's one of my <laughs> occupational identities. I am just an inquisitive person. Mm. You like to, by the sounds of it, so that I, I pick up differences between people. So between me and you, like we do think along similar lines with a lot of things, but from mine, I could be wrong and we'll find out later in this podcast. But um, you seem to be very much the sort of 
sit back and observe things and I seem to be very much the just ask all the questions and try and work it out as quickly as possible. Mm. That's my initial, that's my hypothesis and we will get, come to it at the end and see how wrong I was. <laughs> Watch this space. Watch this space. Tune in. <laughs> so where did you work? So once you finished uni, where did you go? What did you go into? So I started out on a Finu mental health ward um, where I was the only OT working on the ward. And it was yeah brand new to me trying to figure out what to do. And mm-hmm. um, then after a year of doing that, which I loved, by the way, it was a really great role. Um, but I wanted to kind of keep stretching myself. So I then moved to an eating disorders um, day service. And after a while of doing that, I also did a bit of work on the inpatient unit in eating disorders. Um, and then I probably did that for about three years um, before I felt like I needed to stretch myself again and take on a new challenge. Yep. Um, and so then I became a locum. I don't know. Is that a, a term that you guys use? Yes. Yes, we do. Yes, use. I moved into like agency work and the idea was that I wanted to work in loads of different settings and get like lots of different clinical experience to see which path I wanted to take next. Um, but kind of what happened was that my first locum role was on a male forensic acute ward in a medium secure unit. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I loved it so much that three years later, I'm still working in medium security. So your, uh, your plan worked well then to uh, you know, <laughs> move around and get all this experience. Yeah. What can I say? I think, you know, I lucked out. I found something straight away that fit me really well. Um, And I I started working there part-time initially, so I did get to work in a few other units. Um, So I worked in the private sector in an eating disorders ward, and I also worked on an autism unit kind of alongside that forensic work. So I got a little bit of that variety, but mainly I've just stuck there. Um, So in the in the last year, I've moved from the acute ward onto a specialist personality disorder ward, and mm. still in the same medium secure unit. Okay. I want to go back to your first job because I'm curious about <laughs> this because we both started uh, like first job in an acute inpatient unit, um, mm. and I've got fairly strong views which I've expressed on this podcast a few times now around the suitability of inpatient unit for a new grad. And I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are because it sounds like your experience with it was quite positive. Mm. I mean, it was definitely a baptism of fire. Yes. Um, You know, you've got to learn really quickly because you're dealing with high levels of risk. Um, And so if you're not competent to deal with something, or you don't pick up on something, you know, the, the consequences could be really serious. Mm. Um, and so it was something, I mean, I, I love a challenge like that. You know, I love learning. So um, I was really prepared to go in and to learn very quickly. Yep. Um, but what that meant was I had to dedicate a lot of my time to becoming competent. So I used to travel into work at least an hour early every day. And I would go and sit in my office with, journals or um, 
different books and just really upskill myself. And that had to be an everyday thing. Um, so I started looking at things like suicide, you know, how you manage that risk, how you assess that risk. Um, and, and just really generally understanding this really complex world I was working in because I didn't have other occupational therapists to call on for support. Yeah. Um, and I didn't have, I didn't have sort of a mentor or anything like that. So I really had to take that ownership for that process. Was there, but was there I any support? it was worth it. Was there any supports provided by the workplace while you were there? Supervision or anything? There was supervision, um, but it wasn't it wasn't from someone who was on my ward. Okay. And um, so you know, kind of, you know, in the first few days, first few weeks of my role, I had to really make a decision about what does an OT do on this ward? What does that look like? Um, what's my approach going to be? And so, yeah, you know, luckily, I like I said, I'm a theorist, so I'd already spent loads of time thinking about things like practice models. Um, you know what OT means to me, and it was great to have that autonomy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was it was a really steep learning curve, and I think that's where my personal learning networks came into play. Um, you know, so obviously all the online communities of practice that exist, um, in like OTalk or all the four OT groups, mm-hmm. those were like a lifeline to me when I was you know back in. 2013 when I had no idea what I was doing (laughs) I'm sure you had some idea it was a developing idea it was a developing idea and like I said it had to be a very quickly developing idea you know I couldn't wait six months to know how to assess someone's risk because people would have died so I had to very quickly learn how to do these things so is there is there no or was there no training around sort of risk assessment and that kind of stuff provided by the service? There was. Um, I think often what happens in the health service is um, you don't get all your training straight away. Yeah, yep. So there's there's some there's lots of mandatory training, like information governance, um, which is like confidentiality, um, or infection control, fire safety. You get all of that stuff when you start. But something like suicide prevention and management that's kind of a specialist training that might run certain times of year. Um, and so I, I did get to go on a course like that, but that wasn't something I had on day one. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Okay. Because that, yeah, that's yeah, that sounds pretty similar to how it would be run here. So, yeah, you've got all your mandatories mm. around all the operational aspects of it. But, yeah, those kind of important, but uh, mm. uh, bigger – Trainings days aren't generally, yeah, they're not that often, maybe once or twice a year, and you kind of just have to sign up when they come around. Yeah. Or like things like working with trauma um, or dissociation. Mm-hmm. You know, there's kind of more specialist skills um, that, that they may be not relevant to everyone in every setting, so your organization might not run them. Yeah, yep. But luckily... I knew enough OTs who knew about all of these things and could post me, you know, signpost me to the right resources or could just share their clinical experience with me. See, once again, not what you know, who you know. That's true. It's one of those professions as much as some people try to deny that. You can't deny it completely. 
Um, yeah, because mm. I, I find it interesting because, uh, like, I've worked in an inpatient unit, a couple, well, couple different inpatient units at a couple different times during my career, and I kind of, and it may be just based on my experience with them, I've kind of got this opinion that it's probably not the best place for majority of new grads. Um, especially, like, and I'm talking an inpatient unit with no on-the-ground support. So, like, if you are like mm. I was in one of my settings, I was the, similar to you, the only OT on staff, um, very limited other allied health, sort of one social worker, a part-time psych. Uh, I think that was about it in terms of allied health. Mm. Everyone else was nurses or doctors. So yeah, I kind of uh, compared, and it may just be the the services that I worked in, a lot of the other teams had, you know, multiple OTs, plenty of support, plenty of contacts throughout the day, people that you could talk to to learn things and bounce ideas off, um, you know, senior therapists around, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons I've kind of sort of came up with that is because my first job was in an inpatient unit. Uh, I had a lot of support because we were a kind of a slightly different team. So I had a lot of support on that inpatient unit. But when I moved a couple other jobs and then came back to an inpatient unit uh, in a different town, the I was the first non-new grad in that position in 11 years. And I was the only, so I was the only person in the last you know, decade, more than the decade, who actually had experience working in an inpatient unit and where that job had kind of been, I don't know, shoved into the corner by the other staff. Uh, it wasn't mm. OT. It was very much that sort of gap filler role. Um, mm. And I could only, the only reason for that that I could find was the fact that we had new grads going in who didn't really know what it was supposed to look like um, mm. and didn't have a, there was no one there to support them to actually, mm. you know, stand up for themselves and be assertive and this is your role and this is what you should be doing kind of thing. So, yeah, I was just wondering what your experience, but your experience, obviously you are a very unique human being. So you uh, kind of took the reins and found the information yourself, which I don't know if most OTs would actually have done. I mean, I've, I've noticed that this seems like a common theme across loads of different settings. You know, mm. most of my roles I've had, um, you are the lone OT in a service. Okay. Um, and I think, um, I, I don't know if that's, again, just the services that I've been in. Um, I mean, I'm fortunate now I'm in a team of loads of OTs. Yep. But I think that's quite rare. And so I think that's why it's so important for us as a profession to have ways to connect with each other, whether it is through social media or whether it's through different groups that meet up. Um, I think, yes, it's really important for us for our professional identity to have those spaces Um, because, you know, you can, my nursing colleagues in that first job were a fantastic support to me. Yeah, Yeah. They taught me so much about risk management, but if it came to, how do I run a group with people who don't want to engage with me or who are too unwell to engage with this thing that I'm wanting to offer? The nurses don't view the world through the same lens and they couldn't offer me that advice. Yeah, yeah. No, of course. And I think mm. that's that's a big thing. And I think for some, 
in our ser- or in the services that I've worked with um, outside of your operational team, there was usually a fairly strong OT support from you know the OTs in other teams. But I don't know if that's sort of present in all areas around the world. I'm sure it's not. Um, and I'm sure there's services around the world that do it even better. But I think in terms of getting your sort of – there's almost two streams where there's your operational stream with whatever team that you're in and then there's your professional stream where you have sort of mm. you know, profession-specific support. Um, and I think trying to latch on to both of them as quickly as you can is important. I think to, uh, quite often in my experience seeing new grads, they um, – they dive into the operational stuff and try and learn, you know, this is my job, this is what I'm being paid to do, I need to make the boss happy kind of thing. But they, mm. I guess not not neglected, but it's kind of second-tiered, the professional stuff, when they're at least equally as important to be looking at yeah. together. Yeah, I agree. We, we've got to find ways to maintain that professional identity or to strengthen it even, especially for new grads. And you mentioned uh, a lot of the online supports that you utilize, and that's what we were talking about before. That's you know, how we connected and how we've known each other for mm. however many years. Um, is it nine years? I think it was. Is that nine or eight? I don't know what year it is. <laughs> it was the end, <laughs> end of. I'm bad at math right now. End oh, of 2011, okay. so it must be eight. <laughs> Eight years. Just wow. over eight, yeah. And you're, and we met through a virtual conference, which is run by OT for mm. OT. Um, there's episodes with a couple of the OT for OT ladies up now for people that are interested. Uh, and I, I know from that experience, not not specifically the experience of meeting you, but the experience of um, engaging in a lot of those sort of online worlds uh like i've done promotional workshops and conference talks and all sorts of stuff on social media and i believe you've done sort of similar things on the other side of the world (laughs) what you're predominantly from from what i've seen your sort of i guess media of choice tends to be more around twitter Mm. would you say that's a correct assessment yeah, I think I, I would say so. And that's maybe maybe I kind of fell into that um, because of all the early O-Talk stuff. Um, so I was I was one of the founders of, of O-Talk, which is a weekly Twitter chat. That's been going for eight years as well, I think. Um, I think it started on the day that we met or around that week. Really? Um, yeah, it, it coincided with that, with World OT Day in 2011. It was um, so it I was the first one, wasn't it? It was the first OT Twitter chat, the O-Talk? I think it might have been the first healthcare Twitter chat, if I'm not mistaken. Sorry I thought there was a social work one before, like there the was like the inspiration for it. Oh, no, no. I'm wrong. That it was, was a PhD PhD chat was yeah. inspiration. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I was thinking the social work one was uh, the conference. The actual VX was inspired by a social work conference. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, yes, yeah, so I think because I invested so much of my time on Twitter trying to support that new community to flourish, 
I think that's how I've ended up, you know, that, how that's ended up my platform of choice because I just spend a lot of time there. Um, and there may be other platforms now that are emerging that might be better for us to use as a profession. Yeah. Um, so that's something I'm open to, but Twitter is just something that's comfortable and that I've been using for so long. And you are right, I just looked it up. The 25th of October 2011, which was the day we met, which is kind wow. of like Twilight Zone <laughs> spooky. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So what's the, so just for people who aren't sort of familiar with it, what's the, how does it work? What's the concept of O-Talk? So O-Talk is um, once a week. So it's Tuesdays at 8 p.m. in UK time. Um, everyone comes together on Twitter using the same hashtag and has a conversation around one topic. And that's decided um, by a, or it's, it's advertised by a blog post which usually has lots more information about the topic that you can read and prepare your thoughts. And then we just have a conversation together um, about this topic. So I recently ran one about apps um, and we just talked about all the frustrations that we have in our clinical practice and, you know, what apps we wish existed. Um, my favourite suggestion was someone said, we need an app to help us leave work on time. <laughs> um, and I, I really hope someone out there will, will create that app for us. Leave work on time. Who's having issue with that? Yeah. Well, they're just forgetting to I go mean, home. <laughs> I love work I have so an much. Issue with that. Yeah, I believe that. <laughs> I believe you. I would. think my whole team needs that. Um, we've actually started ringing round at the end of the day and saying, "Remember, time to go home." Wow. Okay. <laughs> Fair <laughs> Clearly enough. not an issue that you have. Well. I don't really have clearly defined hours, so maybe I do have that issue mm. and I just don't know it. I have issues with working on weekends. <laughs> maybe I need an app that just blocks me from any work stuff on the weekend. Yeah, I don't know what, what this app would look like, but yeah, I'd love it if someone could create something like that. You just set an alarm. <laughs> <laughs> Time to go home. Oh, okay. <laughs> if only that worked. That's true. That is true. Because um, from there, like, there's a couple others that I've seen. There was an Australian one for a little bit, but I don't think it's running anymore. Um, there's the US, no. US Twitter chat, which is O Talk Number Two Us, I think. Yeah. US Us. That's right. Double entendre. Um, which, but it's different. It's monthly, I believe. Uh, whereas you guys are running it weekly, which is, it seems like a big, like a lot of effort. Is it take like a lot? Like, is there a lot involved in running it? There was a lot more involved when we first set it up yep. because we had to do so much work to um, kind of grow the community and support the community. Yep. Um, I would say now we're at a place where the community kind of runs itself and it's grown so much that people know what to expect. Um, and, yeah, it, it, it just kind of works. Um, so the main work now is in coordinating the chats and booking them in, although we're now booked up for about four or five months, I think, for chats. That's awesome. Um, whereas in the, in, the, in the beginning, it was just, there were seven of us, the seven of us running chats every week because we couldn't get anyone to run them 
because people didn't know what it was. You know, they were like, why would we have a conversation on Twitter yeah. about work? I don't understand. <laughs> so we had to kind of prove the concept yep. and show people that, yeah, let's have a let's have a chat about occupational identity or let's have a chat about group work in mental health. Those were some of our, our earliest chats that we had. Um, I think the dark side of occupation was also quite quite an early chat that we ran. Um, so yeah, we, we kind of had to show people what was possible before they could buy into it. But now, although there's a lot of admin work, it's not as difficult as what it was in the beginning. That's awesome. And you've got, uh, well, just having a look, uh, a growing team. Like I am obviously quite familiar with some of the uh, the ladies that, with sort of started it with you, um, Gillian and mm-hmm. Helen and and a couple others, um, but there's some new, some new, I was going to say fresh blood, but um, not that I'm not trying to call you old or anything, but there's new people in <laughs> on the team, so it's it's well, growing, which is good, and you've got a journal club as well, don't you? As part of it, is that we thing? we used to have a journal club on the, the I think it was the first week of the month, but we've now just incorporated that into our normal chats. Okay. Um, but we have changed that session to a research chat. And so we have a research team who run those chats um, about all things research. And then the rest of the, the month, it's more practice focused. Ah. Um, but you're right, we are growing the team. So we made a decision a few years ago that we wanted to really keep our team fresh and keep new ideas coming in. Yep. Um, but also to develop digital leaders for the future. And so we, we created this digital intern post which is open to students okay, and they could work with us for a year and gain experience with us um, so that, you know, so that those skills are growing in our profession. Um, but the way that's panned out is actually everyone who's joined the team as a digital intern has loved it so much that they've decided to stay on. And that's, that's really stayed. how our team has grown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's obviously a good place to be. Mm. That's awesome. Um, are you involved in any of the other, like you mentioned, other online communities? Are you involved in any of them, or is this sort of your main, your main wheelhouse? Um, so the four OT groups, I think, are a fantastic resource, and I'm not involved in them as much as I'd like to be. I think that's mainly because of my time and because I don't have the Facebook app on my phone anymore <laughs> and so I kind of have to consciously make an effort to sign into Facebook and it's just not on my radar as much anymore okay. um, but I know for a long time if I had a, a question where I wanted to reach a lot of people I would go on to um, say that the mental health for OT Facebook group shameless um, plug <laughs> well you know it, it's a great community um, but I think kind of, I have been thinking a lot more about privacy with everything that's going on on Facebook. Yeah. Um, and so that's probably why I don't use that platform as much anymore. Yeah. It's an interesting world there at the moment. Uh, I think mm. in the next, I, I would put money that in the next 12 months, there's probably going to be some quite big changes with regards to all of that. Um, it's even, there's privacy stuff that's already starting, but. Um, 
yeah, it's sort of at a point where it's almost at critical mass where the next generation of kids coming through, it's so ingrained that they don't even know. Like, I guess for our generation, like I, it wasn't there when I was growing up. So I know the difference. I know what it's like not putting absolutely, and granted I'm probably overly addicted to pretty much every social media I'm involved in, but <laughs> I still remember when, you know, you didn't post everything online, um, whereas the next generation don't have that experience to draw on to sort of differentiate between, well, maybe this isn't normal. So mm. I think if anything's going to change with regards to that, it kind of has to happen soon otherwise it'll just become the norm that all of this stuff it's mm. just a given i guess it's an interesting world at the moment it is isn't it um but yeah so i like i said before i've spoken to a couple i've spoken to uh anita obviously uh and karen jacobs and i am planning to get merrily on here as well soon when we can find a time, so, and they they were probably the the well they were the the big, uh, I guess, catalysts for that whole four OT network, uh, mm. with their OT for OT online technology for OT movement, uh, and the conference that we were talking about before, but yeah, I mm. I, I still find. I probably don't put in as much work into those groups as I used to because I guess similar to you, they're kind of at a point now where they kind of don't need me. (laughs) (laughs) Initially when they started, like it was a lot of input and, you know, it needed a lot of work, but it really doesn't anymore. It's, It's hit that critical mass where it's, you know, looking after itself for the most part and I just moderate. And I think there's a massive need going back to our conversation about people working in lone teams. You know, as OTs, we need ways to connect with people um, who have similar practice backgrounds to us and similar experience so that we can share ideas. Yeah. And so I'm really grateful to the the 4OT suite for doing that and for creating a forum that we could actually connect with people and show that that's possible. And I think that was the one. So one of the big differences before that suite of groups started was there was definitely OT groups before that, but they were exactly that. They were OT groups. So there was probably bigger ones when we started. I don't know if there's too many bigger ones exist now, but when we first started the four OT groups, there was a lot of general groups that were one full of spam, which is one of the things that we tried to differentiate with our groups, but also, they were very general, whereas ours were targeted at specific interest areas. So, I mean, originally, the OT for OT group now is probably more general, um, but originally it was targeted specifically at online technology. But all of the other groups have a, a niche uh, and yeah. they are looking for – there was no sort of big incentive to we must grow the group. It was just here is a resource for people with a similar interest kind of thing. So, um, yeah, as long as you were an OT or an OT student and you had an interest in whatever it was, then come on down. Mm. And I think the numbers of people on those platforms show how much we need those ways of connecting. Do you think... 
So I know you mentioned briefly earlier about other platforms. Do you think mm. uh, Facebook is still the most effective platform for that type of group or are there other ones that you know of that might also service that need? Gosh, I mean, from the, the generic um, social media um, options, I'm not sure that any of them provide something different. Um, now, I know that you and I were talking before about I'm actually working on an app at the minute, mm-hmm. um, which is called Pando. Um, and that one is it's a secure messaging app for health professionals. Um, and I'm... I'm kind of playing with the idea right now that that app could be a way that we can connect with people in this way. Um, but that's kind of an experiment at the minute or a pilot to see how that works and if that is what people need. Yep. Because I wonder, I guess from one thing I have seen, so when I, I was probably not the earliest, but I've always been a relatively early adopter, um, for OTs using social medias on different platforms, like I pretty mm. much tried all of them and just stuck with the ones that I actually liked. But I remember when I first sort of around that 2012, 2013, there was, say, nothing OT regards uh, on Instagram. Like there was no mm. OT community there. And now um, – through this podcast, I've found there's actually, like, it's probably one of the fastest growing OT communities of any social media platform at the moment. Wow. Uh, I it, did not know that. I know, right? It's kind of, I reckon in the last two years, it's kind of just popped up. <laughs> mm. uh, and it seems to be, there's a, 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 I guess the next generation of OTs, there's a lot of students, it seems to be, primarily coming out of the States. Uh, but there's also a lot of Australians that I've found in there. And it's a lot of OTs and OT students sharing their experience, sharing their, you know, for a lot of the students, it's sharing the things that they're learning, um, different mm. models and that kind of stuff. I know pretty much all of the OT podcasts are on there. So they're, you know, sharing the resources that they're putting out. Um, I found OT blogs that have Instagram accounts obviously sharing their resources that they're putting out. And the interesting thing about it that I've found is they're not – it doesn't seem to be really centralized. So what I I mean by that is – so a lot of the Twitter community, when you engage in that community – you're going to engage in it sort of centralized around, say, a hashtag. So you're going to engage mm. with that community around, say, the OTalk hashtag or the OTalk to us hashtag, et cetera. When you're engaging with um, the community on Facebook, you're engaging within one of the interest groups. I haven't mm. found like a central hashtag or anything like that um, on Instagram. For it, it seems to be the Instagram algorithm that seems to be quite good at putting OTs together with other OTs, mm. which has been quite interesting. And yes, I mean, there are hashtags in there. Like if you search occupational therapy, you're going to find a heap of OT posts. But in my experience, the algorithm, the people that it's connecting using its algorithm, 
is mm. generally better quality stuff than I'm finding on specific hashtags, which is completely, wow. to me, which is very different to any of the other platforms, which I'm finding quite entertaining, actually. Mm. I'd love to understand how the algorithm makes sense of which OTs might want to connect with other OTs, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'd... Oh. I think that would be the the million dollar question. I'm sure there's all sorts of proprietary things about it that they won't let that slip. But no, uh, it's it's really interesting. I mean, Instagram's owned by Facebook, as far as I know. Mm. Um, so I find it interesting that that algorithm works really well, whereas Facebook's pretty much just puts people with you know friends of friends kind of thing. Uh, mm. They work in very, very different ways. So, and plus, Instagram now has sort of two aspects to it. It's got the stories aspect, which seems to mm. be working on a different algorithm to the the actual accounts and and posts. So it's 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 an interesting new realm for OTs. But it, like I said, it seems to be the next generation of OTs that are coming through mm. using it. But I wonder what that makes because a lot of, I found a lot of OTs on there that aren't on other platforms. Wow! So I've spoken to a few people that either aren't on Twitter or aren't on face, Facebook, which you know, oh no, shock horror, someone's not on Facebook. Um, <laughs> but they pretty much solely use Instagram, and I one of the things that I've noticed, and I do wonder whether this is a big draw card is some of them do have uh, like a, a specific uh, professional Instagram account. Like they have an OT account and they might have a personal account separate. And one of the things Instagram mm. does, I think, definitely better than probably Twitter and Facebook is the ability to rapid swap between them, mm -hmm. which I think makes that a lot easier to do that and maybe makes it a little bit... Uh, probably easier for people to engage, you know, with their different audiences, I guess, with different accounts. Hmm. It's, I'm so interested to hear this because I, I use Instagram probably every day and I don't think I've ever seen an OT post. And so even though I'm someone who is interested in OT and, you know, I'd love to connect with other OTs, the algorithm clearly hasn't picked that up, um, obviously because I don't post OT stuff. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's interesting, and I'd, I'd be curious to know the people who do want to connect, how they can find other people, how they can start to see these things. Well, it's interesting, yeah. Like uh, obviously, my like the occupied Instagram account is solely following and looking and engaging with occupational therapists, and the algorithm has learnt that. Um, mm. So my, you know. Uh, I don't know what Insta can't remember what Instagram calls it. Accounts you may like or something. Uh, mm. Section is predominantly OTs and um, or OT related accounts. So yeah, I wonder if you do start engaging with OTs using your account, how that particular uh, page would change for you, mm. and how long it would take as well. How how quick is it to adapt? Mm. Uh, so you've recently 
changed, well, not just jobs, but you kind of looking at changing fields as well. Mm. Tell me about that. <laughs> what are you up to? Yeah, so what am I up to? Um, so at the minute, I am working two jobs. Um, so part of the week, I'm doing my clinical job in forensic mental health. Um, and the other part of the week, I'm working for a secure messaging app called Pando. Um, and I've kind of, in some ways, fallen into this. Um, but it, it also just makes sense to me. Um, I remember when I first qualified, I wrote about um, my journey of OT feeling like a roller coaster with lots of twists and turns that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Um, and this is definitely one of those twists and turns. Um, so working in a medium secure unit, um, I have to put my phone in a locker before I can go into the building. Yep. So I spend my whole day without my phone. And it's taken, I've been there for three years and I'm still not used to that. Okay. Um, I think it, it's really made me realize how much apps have become just part of the fabric of my occupational life. Yep, yep. You know, I use an app for just about every occupation in my daily routine, and I'm probably not alone in that. I, I'm <laughs> definitely with you on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I wake up in the morning listening to news on an app on my phone. Probably um, by an alarm that just went off on your phone. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> um, I I time the brewing of my coffee on my phone. Um, I check when my, my next bus is due. <laughs> um, you know, and even like when I'm on, on my commute in the morning, I'm catching up with friends and family on social media, doing my shopping online, um, recording my CPD reflections on an app. Um, and then I get to work and, and I walk through the doors. <laughs> well, yeah, literally. But then I suddenly feel like I'm in a parallel universe. <laughs> So suddenly I start writing everything down on paper. Um, I don't think I even have paper at home, um, but suddenly everything is on paper. Um, and, you know, if I've got a time sensitive message, that I have to get to my whole team of about 20 OTs um, or OTs and OT techs. I have to phone every single person. So I make the same phone call 20 times if I need somebody to come for an impromptu meeting or something like that. Um, or if I have an urgent message about risk and I need to contact someone, I don't know their number. And so I have to walk around physically and search for them. Um, and on the way, other people are stopping me, um, needing me to do something else, which leads to delays. Wow. Um, <laughs> this seems very probably, inefficient. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's such a contrast to the rest of my life which I'm not saying is pure efficiency, but there's an app to make everything easier. Um, and then suddenly there's no apps and I'm doing everything the long way. Um, I think that my biggest frustration is when one of my patients is transferred to a new service and I want to give a handover to the new OT, yeah. um, but I don't know their name. <laughs> so I will fire up the computer at work, which takes 15 minutes on a good day. Um, Classic. <laughs> I know, right? Um, then I have to Google the number for the hospital switchboard of where my patient's gone. Um, then I ask for the occupational therapy department. And usually after spending quite a long time on hold and I get through to someone, 
I realised they've put me through to the occupational health department. <laughs> um, <laughs> so then I have to hang up, course switchboard again, ask again for occupational therapy and say, and that's not the same as occupational health. <laughs> um, I know we've all been there. Yeah, yep, definitely. Good old switchboards. I know. And then sometimes I have to have a conversation with the person on switchboard about why occupational therapy is not the same as occupational health because they are insistent it is. Good Um, good to see you fitting a learning moment in there, though. Well, yeah, true. (laughs) Um, But then usually when I finally get through to the department that I need, which by which time it's probably been about five, ten minutes of waiting, um, it gets answered not by the person that I need. (laughs) Um, who then goes to look for the person who I need, who often is with a patient at the time and so isn't able to come to the phone. Um, And then if I leave my number and ask them to call me back, I'm usually with the patient by the time they've managed to get through to me. Good old phone (laughs) tag. I know. And it's so inefficient and so frustrating. Um, I mean, I have learned to just ask for the email address of VOT and email them but it could be days before they check their emails and get back to me. Um, I don't know. Is that, is that similar in your health service? Uh, I, I definitely think in some instances it is. Uh, the, the areas that I've worked in are usually a little bit smaller, so it's not as hard to find. But if you're looking for things, especially if someone transfers out of district, um, which if you're mm. sort of down around the capital cities in each state isn't uncommon. So like Brisbane, uh, which is the capital of my state, there's four different districts within less than 100 Ks. Um, so it's you know quite common that people might transfer out of districts. And so you might have access to – so we have like um, – I guess, an internal directory for our district where I can look up, mm. um, you know, numbers and stuff. But at a district, you're going through a very similar process to what you've just described. So, yeah, no, I can definitely relate to that experience at times. Yeah, and, you know, I think the thing for me that's so frustrating about all these inefficiencies with our communication, obviously internationally, um, is that our resources at work are really precious. You know, we're not an endless resource our time is precious, um, our professional skills are precious. Mm. Um, and when we don't get to see someone in a timely manner or we don't get to pass on vital information, it can have a massive consequence for patients. Yeah, I'll bet. I just feel like we, we can't afford to miss out on the potential that technology has to streamline our communication, improve how we work, save us time. Um, so, yeah, this was kind of a... Um, why I started looking into health technology just so I could figure out what's out there. So how, because you said before that you kind of just fell into it, how does one mm. fall into communi- computer coding? Because that doesn't, that seems like it takes a lot of careful planning and very deliberate decision making. Doesn't sound like the sort of thing most people would just fall into. However, I have already deduced that you are definitely not most people, so... Please do explain. <laughs> well, just to clarify, I'm not currently working as a software developer. Um, may- maybe one day, I don't know. But it was that was kind of something I was looking into because I saw all these problems and I was like, maybe I could make something 
that could solve some of these problems. Um, and I wanted to figure out kind of what skills do you need to make something like this? And I was trying to skill myself up. So similar to when I was a student and I was going to work an hour early to read about suicide prevention, um, I spent an hour every morning trying to learn JavaScript. Um, just, just to see, you know, is this something that I could use in the future? And, you know, just does my brain work with coding languages? Um, and I mean, it's, it's been really interesting, but I quickly realized that that wasn't something that I could learn very quickly. You know, it's a long process to learn coding and to be good at it. Yeah. Um, and so that's when someone suggested to me, why don't you do a different job? but for a technology company, you know, maybe an app already exists that does the things that you want it to do. Maybe you don't have to make it yourself, um, which seems so obvious now, but I guess I was going about it the difficult way. Um, yeah. And yes, I, was, <laughs> yeah. I can see that. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I don't regret it. It's, it's been great to learn those skills and I'd love to keep learning them. Um, but I guess I want to be able to make a bigger impact and change the way that we work as a health service yeah and i don't want to wait three four years before i've got the skills to start making to do it yourself yeah yeah, i want to be supporting apps that already exist to be the best that they can be for our profession and to shape the existing apps to do what we need them to do now very good so i was googling like what health apps are out there Mm -hmm. and and i came across this one which at the time was called forward um, but by the time this podcast airs, it will be called Pando, which is P-A-N-D-O. Um, and this is a secure messaging app that was purpose-built for healthcare professionals. Um, it was actually founded by junior doctors who, just like me, were really frustrated with all these inefficiencies in communication. And um, the difference was they decided that it was an important enough problem to do something about it. And I guess they had the resources to start doing that they weren't just sitting somewhere in a room trying to learn javascript they actually pulled the right people in and started making this app okay um and they they saw that clinicians were using whatsapp as a workaround to try to solve some of these communication problems um and i actually read a recent article that said that more than 95 percent of doctors in the nhs routinely use whatsapp for clinical messaging um, even though the majority of them have got concerns and don't think it's the right tool. So what, what sort of, I guess, what's the issue with them using WhatsApp in the NHS? Well, for starters, the, the NHS is governed by information governance principles and mm-hmm. laws. Um, so we've got, for example, the EU um, GDPR guidelines, which I'm trying to remember what they even stand for. And I can't remember. <laughs> European um, Union? The, the, the GDPR. Oh. Um, yeah, you know, there are, you know, um, it, to share clinical information in the NHS, there's a lot of guidelines and WhatsApp just doesn't meet those guidelines. As in it's um, not example, secure enough? It's, it's not secure in the right ways. Okay. Um, so, for example, a lot of messages are stored in the cloud in WhatsApp in servers that are based abroad yeah and that's that breaks the laws that we have around how information needs to be stored in in our health service confidential information um and so essentially what's happening is clinicians are choosing 
um, patient safety and getting messages out there quickly over patient confidentiality yep. and following the law. Um, and that puts them, them at risk, really. Um, so the, the founders of this app were really keen to create something that was designed specifically for our National Health Service and for securely sharing confidential patient information. Interesting, because I wonder if the like the those very specific laws are similar in other countries. Do you know? Do you happen mm. to know that? I don't, to be honest. Um, but a lot of it is kind of, um, you know, if, if you think about WhatsApp, for example, if you were to take a photo, mm-hmm. um, that would be stored somewhere on your phone, mm-hmm. um, and then that would then probably sync with. Um, one, the WhatsApp cloud, but also you might back your photos up somewhere else. Yep. And so you might have a clinical photo um, of something to do with a patient that is then stored on your own personal devices, which one I don't want anyway. I don't yeah. want patient information mixed in with my personal information, but also that isn't confidential just by its very nature. So I think even you know, regardless of what the details of the laws are, it's not designed for healthcare. Oh, no, no. Um, and I was just thinking then, like, for, for just as an example with the way my phone's set up, if I took a photo with WhatsApp or send it in WhatsApp, it would be on my phone, which would then also update, uh, also back itself up to my iCloud as well. So it would be a mm. multiple servers in, in well, I'm not sure where those servers are, but... I know the, mm. app, the Apple ones are in the States, but I'm not sure where the WhatsApp servers are, but potentially in multiple countries as well. Mm. And all of a sudden you're losing track of patient information. Um, or the other thing is that people have conversations where they try to anonymize it so much that it doesn't even make sense anymore. <laughs> so yeah, it's like a really yeah. coded message where you're like, oh gosh, I don't even know what you mean. I'm going to have to ring you now because I don't know who this patient is who you're trying to tell me I need to do something with. Yeah. While you're off sick, um, so it's again it's inefficient because if you had an app that was confidential and secure, you could just say, um, "I'm off sick today. Could you please go and see so and so and give them this message?" And that's clear and quick and easy. So is, uh, or oh, in the in the UK anyway, does the does something like email not meet the requirements? Like, could they use email? You can use email. Or is it just not common? Um, I think the thing is, like, so on my typical work day, I might check my emails first thing in the morning if I'm lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, I might not get back on a computer again until the end of the day when I'm writing my notes. Okay. And so let's say if something changes with a patient or um, if somebody needs to get a hold of me urgently, email isn't the best way because I'm not even going to log into my emails for a good seven hours. Okay, so it's more around sort of urgency of uh, actually getting that information to where it needs to be as well. Yeah, and also if you don't know the email of the person that you want to contact, um, then you're back to ringing switchboard and spending 20 minutes trying to find out the email address. Um, So I guess at at the most fundamental level, what we need, and it sounds basic, but we need to be able to find the people that we need to communicate with um, and we need Makes to be able sense. to contact them quickly. <laughs> that is <laughs> You know, useful. we don't want a massive delay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Fair. Um, and then we need to be able to communicate securely and confidentially. Um, and we need to keep track of where the stuff has been done that needs to be done. 
you know, it doesn't seem like too much to ask for, does it? No, well, you wouldn't think so, but obviously there doesn't <laughs> seem to be uh, like any one service at present that sort of, I guess, ticks all of the boxes, which I assume is what the uh, what Pando is attempting to, to do or put in place. Yeah, so Pando, it, it started out as a quality improvement project in a hospital um, and it's since has um, been established as a private company so that it could really expand to the scale that it needs to be to make it helpful for everyone. Yep. Um, um, so it's got a directory, which is great. So you can search the directory of all the professionals who are on the app without needing to know even their name necessarily. So, you know, you might need to find an OT who works in hand therapy in a specific um, hospital. Okay. You can find that without knowing what they're called. You can just search for hand therapy in that hospital yep. or occupational therapist in that hospital. Okay. And so that means you also don't need to have someone's phone number in order to reach them. Yeah, yeah. And That's once you've found handy. the person, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and once you found the person that you need, you can message them either one-to-one um, or you can add them to a team conversation with other people. Um, and then within that, you can share patient cards, um, which is basically a way to securely keep information and notes on a specific patient. Okay. And atta- attached to that, there's also like a task management system where you can list the tasks that need to be done, share them with your whole team and tick them off as they've been completed. So it's, ah, oh, okay. I'm seeing like bits and pieces from uh, like other apps that I know like all being pulled together into one. Um, mm. Interesting. So it's kind of like a, it would also help with a, I guess the, the workflow of a handover as well. Absolutely. And, and some people are using Pando in handovers in the morning where they're looking at all the patients they've got on the ward, what tasks need to be done and sharing those out to the team. Well, I think that would that kind of makes sense because that's one of the I don't know I'm assuming it's probably similar all over the world, but one of the things that gets pushed over here is that we are planning for discharge as soon as they're admitted. So Absolutely. you know the the processes and the things that need to go into someone's discharge and be planned for with someone's discharge start from day dot. Um, mm-hmm. So if you've got I guess that online. Uh, workflow. So I can't think of anything better to mm. call it. That's what I know it as. Um, from you know the day, from the the very first day, and you're keeping that patient card up to date with what's been going on. Then I guess it would make handover very easy when it came to it, because you'd just be, I guess, inviting the the next lot of clinicians into that conversation, and they'd have access to that information. Yeah, and imagine if you could involve them early on in the conversation as well and say, this is a task that will need to be done Yeah. Um, in order for this person to be safe to discharge and it probably needs to start now. So if we could change the way our systems work, where we are, we've all got the information that we need at the right time, things could move a lot smoother for patients. Sounds like a much more, I guess, proactive way of doing it rather than a reactive like, oh, we just got this referral and here's all the things we've got to do. 
um, mm. it, where you spend the first day or two trying to actually make sense of what's been done and where are we and what what are we up to and what's next, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. I mean, I've spoken to OTs who've told me that they used to have referral forms to fill out between services. Yep. Um, and now actually they just send the patient card to the next team and they've just streamlined that process completely because they don't need to go and fill out a form, fax it to someone, ring them up, ask if they've received the fax. It's just kind of a, a short process on the app. That's really, really cool. Mm. At present, I'm assuming it's only for NHS services, so only available in the UK. Currently, it's only available in the UK, um, and it's it's free to NHS staff and also to council staff, so people who work in social services. Okay. Um, but there is there are plans to expand in the future to international audiences, and if people are interested in using the app in other countries, um, maybe we can put some information in the show notes. Yeah, for sure. Who they can contact to kind of register their interest for a waiting list because that will happen. I think. Our conversation has shown that the needs are similar, even if you are in Australia and I'm in the yeah. UK. We need the same things. Definitely. And I think ever more so, I think, oh, I don't think privacy and security, especially data security, is taken as seriously as it needs to over here, in my experience. Mm. Um, but I can foresee it moving in that direction and, Having this sort of service available, I think, will help that process. So help, I guess, uh, Australia to recognise, one, how far behind it potentially is, um, and, and two, like where to go with it. <laughs> what? Okay, mm. here's the issue. Now what do we do? Oh, wait, there's an app that already does all of this and there's all this data from the NHS saying here's, a, mm. here's where it's effective and here's where it can be used and here's how it can be used. Uh, I think that will massively help its uptake in other countries, being able to see it in use, which is awesome. Mm. And this is going back to our discussion about setting up communities of practice in the early days. Mm. You know, sometimes people need to, they can't imagine something that they've never had, but when they've seen how it works and they see that other people are using it, they realize the need and that's when it really grows. And I think one of the one of the other things that potentially an app, whether this one or an app similar to this could uh, assist with is one of the, I guess, one of the shortfalls of a lot of these online groups is they are very public. Uh, oh. and I've got a flat ban in MH for AT on, uh, clinic, like client related discussion because it's, there's mm -hmm. no way to anonymize it enough that I can be sure that no one is going to see it. It's a public group. And that's one of the reasons why I left it as a public group is to try and, I guess, deter those conversations, even though some people dislike the fact that it is a public group, but that's another discussion. Mm. Um, <laughs> but I think if you, if there is a way to set up a, like you said, a community of practice using, you know, secure um, servers, secure data transfer, then potentially you can have what would probably equate to, I guess, peer supervision um, mm. with full knowledge that the information is secure and that it remains confidential um, by the app, well, from the app side of it anyway. 
Um, mm. And you could, I guess, have a lot more of those sort of in-depth uh, client-related discussions safely. Yeah, because I think even in some of the 4OT groups that are private, um, people assume that that means that other people can't see what they're talking about or won't recognize patients from the, the limited details they're giving. And I know there's been some cases, maybe not in the 4OT group specifically, but in social media where patients' families have recognized um, people from the description they've given, even if they haven't used their name or their date of birth. So yeah. I do think there's a need for us to have spaces where we can have these conversations in a secure, private and appropriate way. Um, you know, the, the patient related ones, whereas, of course, people can still go on MH4OT and say, I'm running a healthy eating group. Has anyone got any resources? Definitely, definitely. And I think even being able to share those resources uh, in a a forum where, you know, they're not going to be publicly accessible, especially if it's a resource that you've made and, um, you know, yeah. you're essentially showing someone but the IP might be owned by you or your service, etc. You're probably going to be more open to actually, you know, sharing that information if it's secured. Mm. Which, you know, yeah. right from the very start, I've always been someone that's like, uh, being a, a strong advocate for information sharing, knowledge sharing specifically. Uh, yeah, that's why I got involved with starting 4AT groups. That's why I run a podcast because I have these mm. conversations and then I share that information with other people because other people can learn from those conversations as well. Like I learn from actually having them and then other people can learn from listening to them, which is kind of voyeurish, but it's still a very valid way of learning things and it gets information out there. But I've always been a, you know, knowledge is not necessarily knowledge is power, but knowledge shouldn't be hold ransom, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. But unfortunately, when it comes to confidentiality, that is a barrier that um, isn't necessarily uh, a lot of knowledge, I think, is being, for lack of a better phrase, held ransom behind paywalls and that kind of thing when it doesn't need to be. We were talking about this earlier. Uh, mm. whereas confidentiality I see as slightly different in that it's not necessarily a paywall. It's not necessarily being held up because of someone's, you know, want for profit or et cetera, et cetera. It's being held up for legal reasons that we have to follow mm. in person. Like it's not a different concept. We have to – I always explain to people, well, why can't I have these conversations in a 4AT group? I'm like, would you have that conversation in the middle of a shopping center surrounded by people? Because yes. it's the same thing. It's an online group of people. Just picture that 10,000 10, people standing around in a room. Would you have that mm. conversation there? Because it's the same thing. Probably actually even worse because more of that 10,000 would actually hear you in the online room. Yeah, and you know, you might be posting something in a public Facebook group, but that also shows up in a timeline of your friends or your family or, you know, it, it, there's there's so much spread of information when you engage publicly. And I don't think that's a reason not to do it. You know, there's many conversations you can have in a crowded room that mm. are completely appropriate, but then there's a lot, like you said, that aren't appropriate and we need to find different ways to have those conversations. And I think it's interesting uh, sort of going back to what we were, we were discussing, the differences between different platforms earlier, but I think how 
specifically Facebook has evolved probably more so than any of the others, but the other, other different social medias as well is how that information is or, or where it's disseminated and how it's shown has ramped up exponentially in the last maybe five or six years. So originally, like we were talking earlier about MySpace, if you liked mm. something or if you made a comment on MySpace, it didn't show up anywhere except where you wrote it. If you mm. wanted to find someone that you knew, you had to search for their name and then you had to go <laughs> trolling through that list to find out which was the John Smith that you actually know. Or you had to go through looking through a friend's list to see if that person that you both mutually know was in their list and then you could add them as a friend, etc. Like it was still very contained. Twitter, Twitter originally used to be like that. Yes, it was a public board, but there was no, this is who you might know, or these are things that you might like. There was no trends. There was no, none of that. It was just, you would see people that, the information, the tweets from people that you would follow, or the, the, the ats, um, of people that had sort of directly tagged you in a message. That was it. It was still, even our public space, relatively controlled. And Facebook originally was the same as well, like we were talking about before, back before Facebook Messenger, when you used to just write on people's walls. But no one else saw that <laughs> unless they were on your your profile reading, you know, whatever other people had written on it. Mm. Nowadays, I can like something in a 4OT group and then people who are in my friends list potentially, depending on the algorithm, whether it's having a good day or not, potentially will see <laughs> the fact that I've liked that particular post. Mm. I've had friends that have liked random things in OT groups who aren't OTs, who have nothing to do with OT, but they've you know liked whatever the concept was, whether it was a mental health promotion thing or whatever it was, but they can see that because it's actually put in front of them based on the actual social media platform itself. Mm. Facebook tends to, at the moment, be just spreading that information like wildfire. So if I like something, it's available to not only everyone in that group to see that I've done it, but it's often put in front of the people who are my friends outside of that group, even more mm. so my friends that are in that group, anyone who, not even my friends, potentially sometimes people that just follow my account. I do, for whatever reason, have quite a few people that just follow my account. I don't know them all, but I think a lot of them are OTs. Um, but because my Facebook is predominantly you know, personal friends and family and that sort of stuff, I don't accept everyone, but there are people that follow the account. They can potentially, if it's a public post, they can potentially see that I've liked that as well. Like the mm. the dissemination of knowledge is almost out of control of the individual, mm. which is something that and is like maybe, very new. Yeah, and like it, it might be really good for our profession in some ways that this information is getting out so broadly. You know, it, it raises our profile, it engages people who maybe wouldn't normally think about occupational therapy, and um, so there's maybe some messages that we want to get out there. And there's other messages that we might be horrified to know who is actually reading them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think especially on I – and mean, you, you can lock down your privacy settings and that kind of thing, but I still think anytime you're engaging with public content, it's on public record. Yeah. And it's the same with Twitter. Like Twitter now has um, 
algorithmic recommendations for not just people to follow, but specific tweets that you might be interested in. I've seen them popping up recently. Uh, I don't think those whoever made those tweets that are being recommended to them like ever specifically consented for, you know, do you mind if we show this tweet to a few other people and see if they like it? Mm -hmm. Uh, Granted, it's, you know, they're posting it into a public forum, but it's still the the platform itself that is trying to spread that information wider than it would normally or traditionally have gone. Mm. And I I think that's partly, and I, I can only assume that that's, part of the exponential growth of some of these platforms but i can also see in the future where it could also be having the opposite effect once people i think catch on to the fact that you know information isn't really your information anymore especially with facebook i can see that start i can see that going the opposite direction probably sooner than most um especially like there's no like you said, even in private groups, it's it's not necessarily private. Like especially, yeah. especially now we've got technology for like taking screenshots on phones and stuff like this. Nothing is private mm. anymore. Anything you engage with an online platform, and I'm not trying to scare people away from it, but it's becoming more and more important that we are aware. Um, so any that's and again that's coming back to that's why I have a flat ban on any client-related discussions in in my mm-hmm. MH4OT group. So uh, like an app or a platform similar to Pando is going to be massive. Like it's going to be something that everyone should be looking into in the near future. I can I can see that coming in. Yeah, I mean it's it's the future of healthcare, I think. We need to have ways to communicate confidentially and effectively with people Yes, you know, our teams and people in our work, but also to be able to reach out to specialists in our field, um, other people who maybe have walked the same journey as us and have got some advice. We need to be able to do that um, in this globally connected world in a safe way. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I could not agree more. Uh, is there anything else you want to cover with regards to Pando or anything else in this one? Um, yeah, I think I've got a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. And let me have a think. Um, so my job at Pando is really great because I get to talk to clinicians who are using the app in their everyday work and just get um, examples of how it's making their work easier. So I've spent the last few weeks. Um, phoning people up who use the app every day yep. and just saying, tell me how you use it. Um, and I've been really excited to hear about how people are using the photo function that the app has. Okay. Um, so you can take and share photos within the app. Um, but, you know, unlike what we discussed with WhatsApp, the photos are stored securely on the Pando servers, which are in the app, and they never go onto your phone. So I've That's been hearing good. really exciting things like, OTs who are going out and doing environmental assessments in the community um, and taking photos of specific things that they want to highlight to the team and sharing that visually straight away. Okay. And people have spoken about how this is particularly useful if you've got an OT who's 
you know, going out on their own in the community and seeing something they've never come across before. And they just need some advice on, you know, what kind of equipment might I need or what battery does this piece of equipment need? Um, how, you know, is, are there any workarounds for this problem? So they don't know what to do in the moment and they can send that to their clinical supervisor or team leader straight away and get some advice while they're out there without having to go back to the hospital, have that conversation, come back out again. So that's really speeding things up. That's interesting because I've heard a very similar model used here uh, for telehealth. But to me, mm. the app makes more sense because quite often, like you're right, it is just like a, a picture or some quick advice or what do you think of this or is, is this what you wanted me to look at? Like it's just a little thing and trying to – there's a couple of benefits I can see here in Australia anyway is one, that's going to take a lot less bandwidth than trying to connect a video, um, mm. like a live video connection, uh, which means that you're going to be able to use it in more locations. Australia is a big place, as, again, we found out earlier, it's six South Africans. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Don't rub it in. <laughs> um, and being such a big place with, uh, in some areas, the population is quite spread out. Phone reception isn't always you know, readily accessible. We, you know, I'm lucky. I live in a sort of a regional center. Um, I have excellent phone reception wherever I need it at the moment. But there are people who live in more rural towns who it might be really sketchy or they might have none at all. Um, but I think being able to still be able to connect back to, you know, your team at home or base or wherever it is using a device that's going to use less bandwidth than, say, a traditional telehealth. So, like, for example, like FaceTiming um, back Mm. in to actually get a live response uh, opens that option up, especially in Australia or places like it, uh, opens that option up to more people. Because I think the model in Australia that I've heard of being used for telehealth was to send essentially the more junior clinicians out uh, in, mm. into the field and then they would connect back with a senior clinician who would, you know, correlate with what they were trying to see, what they were trying to assess, et cetera, and give advice um, as a cost-saving measure of, you know, now we have six junior clinicians and one senior as opposed to needing six senior clinicians. Mm. So I could definitely see that app, especially – somewhere like Australia, um, with sometimes patchy mobile signal or low mobile signal um, being of great benefit to those teams, probably the same teams that are currently trying to look into telehealth. Uh, mm. I, could, I could definitely see something like that being of use. Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've spoken to people. So I spoke to an OT who manages eight teams um, and – he doesn't even need to go and physically step onto those wards um, because people can just message him with their questions or um, you know any advice that they need, which saves him so much time that he can support more clinicians because he's not having to walk to them. And that's like we're talking a 10-minute walk, not travelling the distances that you're talking about. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've also I've also heard from teams who you know, work in the community and are sending out, like you said, junior clinicians who are not as experienced, who might come across a patient who seems medically unwell and they may not have the medical training to, to be able to judge in that situation 
is this something really serious or is this something that can be managed at home? And what's happening is those people are using Pando to connect with nurses back at their base or doctors back at their base and say, this is a clinical presentation. What do I do? And because they can get that advice immediately, Mm. um, instead of having to, you know, what you would do is normally if you're worried and you don't know if it's an emergency, you treat it as an emergency, right? You'd you'd rather be safe than sorry. And so what happens is people are needlessly admitted to hospital when it's not an emergency. So now there are teams who are avoiding unnecessary admissions to hospital because they can just very quickly get advice from a nurse who can say, actually, that's okay. All you need to do is X, Y, Z. Which, again, is saving the service however many thousands of dollars with needless admissions. Not to mention the, the unwanted... Well, it is what it is, unwanted trauma of having an admission from some, like to someone. Because mm. as much as we like to think that we're helping, like admissions to hospital are traumatic, whether no matter how smoothly they go. Generally, people aren't admitted to hospital because they're having an amazing time and they just love it there. So, yeah. And it's disruptive. You know, from an occupational perspective, it's so disruptive to someone's yeah. daily life. And so, yeah, if you can keep someone at home, you're saving them money, but you're also, or you're saving the health service money, but you're also just, yeah, helping that person have a better experience. Definitely, definitely. I can see this blowing up. I can see it being amazing. You know, I can too, which is, which is why when I saw it, I was like, I want to be part of this. You know, I don't want to just be someone who downloads the app and uses it. I want to be part of shaping it and shaping what it will turn into because I could see it being something that we use as standard, you know, routine practice. Um, and I'm, I'm so keen, I'm so pleased that when I went for my interview and I told them about what OT does, because, I mean, surprise, surprise, they didn't know what occupational therapists did, yep. um, <laughs> whoever does. Yep. Um, and so I explained, you know, that we are people who um, are great at engaging people in, in general, we're good at understanding what people need. We're good at identifying problems. Um, we're good at communicating those problems and identifying solutions. You know, when I told them that, it was like, that's exactly the type of person that we need working in a company like this. Hell yeah, it is. I know. And I think as OTs, we've got so many skills that we can offer. And I just thought if I can use my OT skills to actually be a voice for the profession and to say this is what we do don't forget about us this is what we need specifically in our profession this is what we can offer that has a massive impact then down the line so I'm really glad that they kind of took the chance on hiring me and saying yeah please tell us what OTs do we want to understand we want to understand what you need to be most effective in your work definitely I think it's a great opportunity I'm so happy that it was something I stumbled across I'm also extremely happy that you're there because essentially it means that when this, uh, well, obviously it's not available in Australia, but when, if uh, it rolls out down this end of the world, there's going to be OT input. It's going to be, I guess, more tailored to use by OTs because of you. Yeah, I mean, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? (laughs) Um, and I, what, what I love is that the team there, they really listen. You know, they, because of the way that the, the company has been developed, 
they want to know about clinicians and what they need and they want to give clinicians what they need. So they do take on board feedback and obviously they can't create all the features that people want straight away. Oh yeah. But they do listen. And so I feel like it's really worth my time to go in and say, this is what OTs need. This is how we use it. Um, because they will they will use that feedback. Fantastic. Fantastic, fantastic. So I mean there are so many great features on this app and you know we've discussed some of them today um, and it's it's saving clinicians around the country loads of time on their shift um changing the way that they work improving their work satisfaction um but for me personally my favorite thing about the app is actually how it can support us to protect our own occupational balance um so we we generally work really hard and we give a lot of ourselves as OTs. Yeah. Um, and using the same platform for all of our communications. You know, if we're using WhatsApp, for example, or text messages to contact our family, but also to contact our colleagues, um, that can make it really difficult to draw a line between our personal and our professional lives. Yeah, yeah, yep. And it can make it difficult to insulate our home time. So I, I know I've been on a date or sitting with a friend who's upset and then my phone's gone off and it's somebody asking me for advice on what to do with a patient and that that can feel like a bit of an intrusion sometimes when you're kind of it's not the right situation to be dealing with work yeah, it's hard to create that separation when it's all intertwined within your apps absolutely and um you know and of course we we care about our work and we want to be available when people need us but there's times when that's not the best thing for our own well-being. And so um, I love being able to, on the app, you, you can mark yourself as unavailable. Oh, nice. During times when you don't want to be disturbed. Yeah, that's and awesome. So it's just, you know, you, you just push push this button that says unavailable and it creates like a little red dot next to your um, your name. So anyone who wants to message you can see visually that you're not available. Um, they can still message you, but they'll get a message saying this person is currently not available. If it's urgent, contact someone else. Yeah. And so I can kind of know full well that it's okay. I've, I've told people I'm not available and I can focus now on my life. And I can always check the app and check the messages and if I'm concerned about something. But it just means I can have a bit more headspace to be fully present with my with my personal life. Yep. That is that's actually really thoughtful and really clever. Uh, not it is not even it? something I've actually thought about recently. That no. it's kind of important. We need to. Uh, I've spoken a lot about on this podcast about you know the need to, for us to look after ourselves. Um, mm. So the fact that the app is actually you know intuitive enough and and looking at that already is is fantastic because I think quite often a lot of that sort of stuff tends to be an afterthought. So it's awesome that, that yeah. you know, even in the initial stages, uh, they're, they're already looking at it. They're already thinking about it, which is wicked. Yeah, and it's so refreshing in a world where we're expected to constantly be available and constantly be replying to things, to be able to put that boundary in place and be like, actually, I'm going to look after myself right now, and right now I need to not be available. Yeah, that's So really it might cool. sound selfish, but I think we need to be a bit selfish and you know, make sure that we don't burn out as, as clinicians. Selfish is important sometimes. Mm. As much as, you know, as selfish as that sounds, <laughs> it uh, <laughs> sometimes it, it, we need it. It's the only way we need it. We absolutely do. 
Um, so yeah, it's it's maybe not the not the most. Um, kind of think. Ah, forget it. <laughs> I've lost my train of thought. That's all right. That happens. Trust me. <laughs> I'm exceptionally good at losing my train of thought, along with many other things. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you. I can't thank you enough for for coming in and and having a chat. Uh, I've I can definitely say I've learnt an absolute shit ton. Um, probably shouldn't say it like that, but just did. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, uh, is there, where can people find you? Where can people find information about the app? Um, let us know, shout out whatever you want. I'll also add links to the show notes, but yeah, shout out whatever you want. Yeah. So if people are interested in Pando, um, they just need to go to the app store or Google play if, if they're in the UK and download it for free. Um, and they would sign up with their work email address and that's for security to, to make sure that the people accessing the app should be accessing the app um but yeah maybe i can um send you some links that we can add to the show notes and people can have a bit awesome. more of a read if they want to look into maybe some of the security stuff or the information governance stuff we can provide some information there definitely we can definitely do that so if you are interested in the app or anything that we've spoken about today uh check the show notes and i will throw all the links into there Brilliant. Thanks so much, Brock. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's weird because, you know, I grew up in South Africa, right? I, I know that now. As you of know like, <laughs> like last week, yeah. I don't know how that's happened, Brock. Like, how I don't have you know, know either. For that long and not know.